0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well,
0: Margaret, there's been more talking of sweeping changes at the Veterans Health Administration. We're seeing more evidence of entranced culture, of long waits and severe shortages of primary care practitioners throughout the tax VA system.
1: Well, that's right, Mark. And the realities of what's happening in the VA health system are starting to sink in The VA operates 150 hospitals around the country, but currently report a shortage of 400 primary care practitioners, which is not only a problem at the VA, it's a problem nationwide, and apparently having quite a bit of trouble finding the professionals to fill these posts.
0: The uh, patient load is very high for those primary care practitioners working for the VA. About 2,000 patients per practitioner compared to what the VA recommends about 1,200 patients. So there is a very heavy uh, patient load, which is one of the key contributing factors leading to longer wait times.
1: And it should be noted, Mark, that according to a recent survey, while most veterans don't like the long waits, they are satisfied with the care that they get once in the system. So a conundrum, but one that needs to be solved and soon.
0: Meanwhile, Margaret, measures are being put in place to address some of the problems, including veterans being allowed to seek care in the private sector if they're being forced to wait that long. Uh, This should alleviate some of the backlog.
1: And of course, members of Congress are weighing in. He's introduced a new bill the Restoring Veterans Trust Act, which seeks to rapidly address some of the most pressing issues. The bill would make it easier for the beleaguered Department of Veterans Affairs to hire and fire employees, lease new space for clinics and hospitals, and send veterans to outside providers if care is not available within 30 days.
0: All these suggestions seem like reasonable measures, and since there's been an uproar from both sides of the aisle, I suspect there'll be some quick action to uh, approve the necessary funding.
1: The name says it all, Mark, restoring the trust of america 's veterans is just paramount to successfully putting this problematic issue to rest.
0: another area of health care uh, that is indeed of gaining trust is the realm of telemedicine and telehealth, still a fledgling aspect of health care, but one that is poised to grow over time
1: and that 's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Dr. Wendy Everett is the Chief Executive Officer of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, or NEHI, a nonprofit, nonpartisan health policy institute that's focused on enabling and supporting innovations that improve the quality of care and lower the cost.
0: We'll also hear from Laurie Robertson, Managing Editor of factcheck.org.
1: And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as
0: always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Dr. Wendy Everett in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The cost of inpatient procedures at the nation's hospitals went up almost across the board in 2012, and in many cases at a rate Almost four times the national rate of inflation. According to the study, hospitals charged more across the spectrum of 98 common procedures from hip replacements to chest pain. Charges for chest pain rose on average 10 percent across the country in 2012 alone, based on data released from the recent Medicare billing data dump. While these price increases don't necessarily affect Medicare recipients who enjoy fixed reimbursement rates negotiated by the federal government, it does affect the individually insured and the millions of Americans who are now paying much higher deductibles and out-of-pocket costs for health care. Another health care cost increase story, insurance premiums. Health insurers are already readying rates for 2015, and the early signs point to a double-digit rate increase for 2015. Arizona is already seeing rate increase requests for next year of between 10 and 25 percent. Meanwhile, folks aren't just buying insurance on the exchanges by the millions. Many sought to purchase health plans privately through insurers. The number of people who bought health insurance on their own outside of Obamacare exchanges surged at the beginning of the year. Kaiser Family Foundation estimates between 3 million and 3.5 million new people signed up for health insurance either through insurance companies or brokers in March alone. Death, dying, and doctors. Turns out most would shun aggressive treatment at the end of life. They've seen the suffering of their patients at the end of life and say they want no part of it. In fact, nearly 9 in 10 young physicians just finishing up residencies or fellowships say they wouldn't want to receive life-prolonging CPR. The study published in the journal PLOS One notes the disconnect between the aggressive care the average person receives in the health care system in their last month of life and what doctors say they'd want for themselves. On average, $7,000 are spent in the last month of life, often just to prolong folks' lives for days or even hours. And if you think teenagers are becoming weaklings, you're right. Less than half of youths between the ages of 12 and 15 are even close to being aerobically fit, according to data released by the Centers for Disease Control. That's down from 52% of young teenagers in 1999, the last time this survey was conducted. It measures adequate levels of cardiorespiratory fitness, which children need not only for sports but for overall good health girls were particularly out of shape, just 34% of them having adequate cardiovascular health compared with 50% of the boys. But even 50% says the CDC is not good enough. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Wendy Everett, Chief Executive Officer of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, NEHI, a nonprofit, nonpartisan health policy institute focused on enabling innovations that improve the quality and lower the cost of health care. She's also vice chair of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission, which oversees health reform initiatives in that state. She's the director of the Institute for the Future, overseeing the creation of a 10-year national forecast in health and health care. Dr. Everett earned her master's and doctorate in public health at Harvard. Dr. Everett, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you so much. You know, you
0: all are doing great work at NEHI, and uh, you're at the helm of one of the largest multi stakeholder organizations in the country really focused in on the critical issues of cost, safety, and quality. And, and here we are at the time of great transformation in the healthcare system and also at a time of unprecedented innovation. So, who are the collaborative stakeholders at NEHI and what kinds of policies are you focused in on actually having the power to influence innovation in healthcare?
3: NEHI is a member-based organization with just under 100 different members from all across the healthcare spectrum. So our mission, very specifically, is to save lives by speeding the adoption of valuable innovation, speeding the adoption, and many innovations that come to market are not necessarily uh, valuable in and of themselves were to patients. Our members represent health plans, um, service delivery providers, physicians, manufacturers, uh, biopharmaceutical companies, patient and consumer groups, anyone who's really involved in a nonprofit or for-profit healthcare system. And our goal is to bring everyone to the table so that we can use the combined intellects of all of these people to reach consensus um, on solving these critical problems in healthcare. Our research really addresses innovation. And then how do we remove the barriers to the adoption of those innovations that are truly valuable? We work in five main areas. Um, The first is improving the delivery of health care. The second is ensuring the responsible use of medicines. The third is reforming payment systems in health care. The fourth is advancing technology. And then the fifth is that we work hard to promote health and wellness throughout communities. So we're very interested in policies that speed or accelerate the adoption of innovation that will help patients. So as an example, it's well known that up to 50% of patients don't take their medication as it's prescribed by the physician this um, results in just under $300 billion worth of waste in the system. A second example is that of medication errors. Um, We've worked over time to identify that about $2 billion in wasteful spending results in roughly 100,000 avoidable deaths annually.
1: Well, Dr. Everett, you had co-authored a report not long ago in health affairs with actually two former guests on the show, Joe Kevadar from the Center for Connected Health and Molly Coy, the Innovation Director at UCLA. And the report uh, looks at how we can improve patient health and outcomes with more of a focus in use of telehealth and telemedicine strategies. Where are the partnerships in play right now? And what kind of results are you seeing and how will you bring this one to the fore if that's a focus area of yours? So if we look
3: at something as simple as using home telemonitoring system, a scale that's connected to a telephone line that transmits just the weight many times, translates those data over a very simple telephone line to the physician's office so that a patient can be monitored on a daily basis. There's been a lot of research showing that this is an extremely effective tactic to keep congestive heart failure patients out of the hospital and really manage them effectively at home. So when we think on a global basis of who are the players, right now the players are the manufacturers, So So Joe has used many of these different processes with his patients and partners, and through this telemonitoring process, they've reduced hospital readmissions by 44%. Um, A second great example of uh, a good partnership is the Veterans Health Administration, um and what they have done particularly in their in the southwestern rural areas is to use telemonitoring both for their chronically ill patients but also for their um returning vets with post traumatic stress syndrome who are pretty isolated and by doing that we're able to attain a 25% reduction in their number of bed days, um, and a 19% reduction in hospital admissions. I think um, the Center for Connected Health at Partners has been uh, the gold standard as a model and that said hypothetically if um, the delivery systems around the country were able to use telemonitoring and telemedicine appropriately, that we could save up to $4 billion annually. Uh,
0: the industry organizations recently outlined guidelines for governing the use of telemedicine. The American Telemedicine Association and Federation of State Medical Boards offered proposals that would clear up some of the confusions And so new guidelines seem to favor secure video conferencing over telephone or other communications. I I wonder if you could outline for us what some of these new recommendations are and how the payers are involved and how you see these rules uh, precipitating more use of telemedicine uh, protocols moving forward, Wendy.
3: So telemedicine has a great deal of promise. But much of the regulation around how people can practice medicine is done at the state level. So um, those state laws at the moment are quite inconsistent. And in a a small area like New England where you have six different states and they're relatively close together, each of those six states has – a different and separate set of regulations that govern um, how physicians both can practice medicine and how they get paid. Um, So to date, that has been a significant barrier. Um, The Federation of State Medical Boards very recently released their model policy of the appropriate use of telemedicine technologies. And in that, they provided some guidance and a basic roadmap. I think most of us feel that the State Medical Board Federation didn't go far enough. So the guidelines that they promulgated really describe telemedicine as applying to secure video conferencing rather than going a bit farther and saying that it also applied to email or telephone communication, or even thinking about some of the basic Skype or FaceTime mm-hmm. technologies mm-hmm. that are already in wide use. Um, there's a new study by Deloitte that predicts by 2014 there could be up to 75 million electronic visits in North America, and that would represent about 25% of the market. So we need to work pretty quickly to address um, this physician-to-physician telemedicine consultations and the physician-to-patient electronic communications that fall far short of the secure video conferencing that was endorsed by the Federation.
1: Um, maybe just let me pivot a little bit away from uh, telemedicine to just the use of data, which is another area that your organization is really stepping out in a leadership role to say what is this evolving landscape in health reform where comparative analysis and outcomes research are so essential, and yet sometimes our ability to actually make use of the mountains of data that we have is limited. What are you doing at NEHI? What's your focus in this area of facilitating better understanding and then release and use of these mountains of data that are now available to us?
3: So we recently looked at this issue of big data and comparative effectiveness research and how they relate to both innovation and the management of patients. And I think that there is enormous potential for big data to give us some information that will allow us to move forward with innovations much faster than we have in the past. However, there's an important limitation to it right now, which is that there are virtually no standards around the methods and the interpretation of data that are being collected and analyzed by various organizations around the country. So any group can take aggregated data from all of the patients in their system and look at it and come up with conclusions. However, there's absolutely no standardization about the quality of what those data should be and what conclusions can be drawn from it. Now, there obviously are a number of very important groups in the country, PCORI being one of them, um, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review being another, that have developed highly rigorous and standardized ways of looking at these data. But other than that, it's a little bit of the Wild West out there. Mm -hmm. I think we're taking a pretty conservative view and saying, Very early days, and our job as a healthcare industry writ large is to develop some standards for data collection and analysis that have to be pretty broadly accepted before they can have a major influence on our health care decision-making.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Wendy Everett, Chief Executive Officer of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, NEHI, a nonprofit, nonpartisan health policy institute focused on enabling innovations that improve the quality and lower the cost of health care. She's also vice chair of the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission, which oversees health reform initiatives in that state. Wendy focus a little on one of the five areas uh, that Nihai is interested in, and that's payment reform. And you recently co-chaired a health innovation summit that focused in on solutions towards achieving uh, the triple aim of more affordable, uh, better patient experience and improved patient population health. While we've seen a diminution of health spending, we haven't necessarily seen changes in payment reform or cost containment in health care. Maybe you could share with our listeners uh, some of the innovative payment models emerging now and where you see the best hope for payment reform.
3: Um, Any payment arrangement that really incentivizes and rewards um, physicians, nurse practitioners, providers to integrate care and deliver a higher quality level of care is a very promising model. So we were fortunate in that there were many great examples of these payment models that were showcased at our summit, including the pioneering alternative quality contract that was created by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, and really the concept of global payments um, for managing populations of patients over time. Um, one of my very favorite parts of the summit this year was the population health session that featured Dr. Ruchika Fernandepul of uh, Iora Health, um, and I know you've had a chance to have him on your show as well. Rushika's doing just very interesting things with primary care and population health, but he's able to do that because he's working with self-insured employers directly and they are paying him on a capitated basis to provide um, these services to their employees. So he's able to use health coaches and to identify not only the patients that are sick but also the patients that might not yet be in need of care so that they can um, do a lot of preventive work. And um, as your audience knows, if they heard his presentation, he's been able to decrease his overall cost by 10 to 15 percent. We also had a fascinating panel on state health reform uh, initiatives. And you may know that there are four states in the country that have passed legislation on health reform that is geared toward cost control. Massachusetts, Oregon, Maryland, um, and Vermont. So we had a very lively discussion there And in general, I think people believe that the the government can, through these new, and these are very innovative and different regulatory changes, it cannot only encourage payment reform, but it can really encourage innovation in the delivery system. So one of uh, our panelist, Dr. Justine Carr from Steward Healthcare System, talked about the fact that shifting to global payments, where Steward is paid one amount of money to take care of, for example, a diabetic patient, has really spurred them to think about innovative ways to provide that care. Um, at a high quality, but a lower cost, so I think that these new payment models have not they they have not only the opportunity to put a cap on cost and limit cost growth, but they have a little mini disguised engine in them um, that is pushing the providers the integrated delivery systems to say, "Wow." maybe we should be looking at remote monitoring of our intensive care patients because it will prevent expensive complications. And I I would say that was a little bit of an an unintended consequence, um, but fascinating to me that these new payment models um, are having this effect on the delivery systems.
1: Well, I know that uh, you served uh, in the role of uh, the director of the Institute for the Future in the Past, and certainly many of these things that we have heard about in past years seem to portend well for our future, so thank you for that. We've been speaking with Dr. Wendy Everett, CEO of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, or NEHI. You can find out more about their work by going to www.nehi.net. Dr. Everett, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today.
3: Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
0: At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Well, there's a new ad airing in Michigan that claims insurance premiums are up by nearly 40% in the state but that figure comes from an unscientific survey on premiums in the individual market. The ad marks the second time we've seen Americans for Prosperity citing this survey in an attack on a Democratic congressional candidate. The ad leaves the false impression that the rate increase applies to all premiums, but it only pertains to about 5% of Michigan residents who buy their own insurance on the individual market. In fact, employer-sponsored premiums have been growing at historically low rates in recent years. And the 40% figure comes from a survey of six insurance brokers in the state by Morgan Stanley to guide investor decisions on stocks. One polling expert told us the survey had no scientific validity, particularly with the state results being based on few responses. A footnote in the Morgan Stanley report gives a similar warning. Unfortunately, there are no reliable apples-to-apples comparisons of rates in the individual market before and after the Affordable Care Act exchanges launched it's quite likely that rates have gone up as the law requires a minimum set of benefits. That's one reason a before-and-after comparison is so difficult. Some will pay more and some will pay less, depending on circumstances such as health conditions. Even if the 40% figure were accurate, it doesn't account for government subsidies, which 80% of those in the exchanges are expected to receive, according to the Congressional Budget Office.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The U.S. boasts among the highest rates of teen births in the world's industrialized nations. And while those numbers have been declining in recent years, it's still a significant health issue in this country. According to a recent study, the decline in teen birth rates in this country can be attributed in part to the launch of the popular MTV show, 16 and Pregnant, and the subsequent Teen Mom. MTV launched the series in 2009 to show the challenges and harsh realities of teen pregnancy and teen Teen parenthood Researchers at the University of Maryland and Wellesley College conducted an empirical study to determine what, if any, impact the shows had on the decline of teen pregnancy and birth. Wellesley College economist Philip Levine found that much of the decline in recent years is the result of the Great Recession, but that it didn't account for all of the decline. They decided to utilize Google Data Tracker and Twitter activity around the airing of the shows, which developed a loyal following and cons- consistently high ratings. So they call the Nielsen rating data.
4: We look to see people searching for things like, how do I get birth control? So you see these enormous spikes in activity about 16 and pregnant the day the episode airs. You just see this huge spike in activity. And that also tends to correlate with people doing things like searching and tweeting about birth control.
0: More interestingly, were the social media conversations surrounding themes explored on the show. Loss of freedom, the fathers of the baby often removing themselves from the picture, themes that really drove the challenge of teen motherhood home to millions of young, vulnerable viewers.
4: It really illustrates the life choices that these girls have made uh, and what outcomes it has on their lives in a way that a reality TV show can do that public service announcement or a sex education teacher or some other form of communication can't really accomplish.
0: They determined the show led to a 5.7% drop in teen births from 2009 to 2012 in the relatively short period of time. The study, Media Influences on Social Outcomes, the Impact of MTV's 16 and Pregnant on Teen Childbearing, can be found in the National Bureau of Economic Research. MTV says this aligns with their goal of the show, which was to utilize their trusted media platform to reach a vulnerable sector of their audience and educate them about the potential hazards of risky behavior in a format they understood, reality TV. A media outlet utilizing airwaves to reveal the risk of teen pregnancy, thus creating a platform for dialogue for teens to address this potentially life-changing event, leading to a significant reduction in teen pregnancy. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.